Welcome to River City Church Podcast. We're glad you're listening. We believe this message will be encouraging and timely. To connect with us, find us on social or at rivercitychurch.co. Today, we're going to start in James chapter 4, James chapter 4, talking about dangerous prayer. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, we're going to look at this together. It says, but he gives, talking about God, God gives more grace. Grace is two things in the lives of a believer. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. See, mercy is when we don't get what we deserve, the consequences of our sin, that we are given mercy through Jesus, but his grace is when we get what we don't deserve, that God not only forgives us of our sin, that he paid the price through, through his work on the cross for us to be forgiven, but in giving us grace, he gives us the gift of his righteousness, eternal life, a future, a home in heaven, but also a purpose right here on the earth. There's so much that God gives us in Jesus, and so that's what his grace is. God's grace is what we didn't deserve, he gave us freely in Christ, but also grace is the enablement of God. It's the empowerment of God to carry out and accomplish his will in and through our lives. Paul would say this, he said, I accomplished more than the other apostles, but it wasn't me. It wasn't my own effort or my own giftedness or ability, he says, but it was the grace of God in me. In other words, God's grace enabled him to do what he was called to do, and God's grace will do the same in your life. So here's what he says. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Uh, I've defined this before for you that pride is not just, you know, we think of pride as somebody boasting or talking overly inflated about themselves, their own ego, that that's pride. And that can be a part of pride. That can be a, 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 a obvious form of pride. But pride at its root is simply independence from God. It's deciding to live my life my own way. It's deciding to go my own course, to choose to depend upon my own self or maybe some other source or some other person or relationship instead of God. So here's what pride is. At its root is independence. The opposite of that, humility, is not thinking less of myself or having a poor image, but it's actually at its root dependence on God. I can have a low view of myself and not be depending on God. That's not humility. In fact, humility, biblical humility, was often mistaken for pride in people in the Bible. David shows up to a battle one day with Goliath challenging and mocking all of the Israelites and, and for, I think, something like 40 days, all of Israel is remaining silent while the enemy is mocking God and mocking God's people. And while this is happening, they're all hiding. They're, they're talking about how wise they are by not putting sticking their necks out and fighting the giant. They're, they're probably even spiritualizing it. Maybe it's not God's will for me. Maybe it's not, who knows what they were doing. But David shows up to the battle and immediately kind of becomes incensed. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? He's this boy, but he's challenging this giant. He's challenging Goliath, and his brother comes along and says, I know your pride. I know your pride. He, he thinks that David's confidence is in himself, but no, real humility is confidence in God. It's confidence in God's strength, God's ability, God's resource, God's wisdom. It's dependence on God. And here's what James says, God resists the proud. God actually resists me uh, depending on any other source. And that by itself isn't just God resisting it, but it's because God loves me that God, God invites me to depend upon him because going my own way never works out. God does not want me depending on something that is not reliable. 
that ultimately may even lead to death. But God resists the proud but gives grace, his favor, but also his power to those that are humble or dependent on him. So therefore, this is the key verse today, verse 7, therefore, two things, submit to God, submit to God, and resist the devil, for, and he will flee from you. Not he might, not he could, but he will flee. These two things are very important. Submitting first to God and then resisting the devil. And he continues, and there's so much more here we can talk about. But in verse 8, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a great promise that no matter where we are, no matter who we've been, no matter what we've done, we can draw near to God through Jesus. That he makes a way for us to have a relationship with him. We come broken, and he's the healer. We come bound, and he's the one who sets us free. We We come stained with the guilt of our own sin and shame, and yet he forgives us freely by his grace, and he offers us redemption and hope in a future. And he invites us into something. I described to you last week how prayer is three things. It's, an, it's a conversation. Simply, it's you talking to God and receiving from him. Prayer is a conversation. So it, it's not defined by how spiritual you sound or how much you know, but it's simply a child coming to his father, coming to their father in heaven. You draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Prayer is an invitation to encounter and experience him and his promise. It's also a habitation that as we develop a relationship with God, we create a space in our lives to know and experience him on a regular basis, but also to have him encounter and invade the world around us. That's what we're to be. You're to be be a carrier of the presence and truth and promise of God to the world that needs him. So he says this, that therefore submit to God. These are two aspects of prayer, because prayer is more than just asking God for our needs to be met, and I believe in that. We should do that. That's part of us depending on God. He's our source. I told you last week, don't let prayer be your last response. Let it be your first response. Don't let it be after I've gone through all the other options, tried every other uh, avenue, and I've exhausted every attempt and every, every effort that now without any other options, I go to God. No, go to God first. Go to God as your total dependence and, and, and watch him do what only he can do. Draw near to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee. From the Amplified Bible, it says this, submit to the authority of God. Some people have, they recoil even at that word submit because it usually carries a connotation from, from dealing with unhealthy maybe leadership or influence or even parental uh, unhealthy uh, brokenness in families with parent and child. And, and the reason why there's that is because we, we have a hard time submitting to what we don't trust. And if we don't trust God deep down, we have a hard time saying yes to him and his plan. But I, I preached for, I think, six or eight weeks, I forget, about the God's good. Uh, and, and we, you know, that's, that's, I was only scratching the surface, even with all of that. We have to have as our foundation the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, and he is trustworthy. And I can say yes to Jesus and know that he's going to lead me in his perfect pur- purpose and will. So, so we have to get this. This is so important. So submit, uh, I've got the definition here. It means to arrange under, under, excuse me, under or subordinate, to obey, to submit to one's control or influence, or to yield to someone's admonition or advice. So, Jesus, take the wheel. Got one Carrie Underwood fan. Okay. So, it involves two things. And I, honestly, in, in years of ministry, I can tell you that most 
of my issues and most issues of people that I've worked with in ministry can be solved by one or both of these two things taking place. Submitting to God, saying yes to Jesus fully, and resisting the enemy. We need to do both. See, there's some things in my life that I'm meant to accept because God's, bring, Leslie mentioned that God's good and he's, he's perfect and, and there is no shadow of turning in him and God has a plan. Now, sometimes I don't always understand the next step and I look at the season I'm in or I look at certain things and I go, well, how is this all going to work out, God? But I trust the one who's called me. And as I know him and I depend on him and I say yes to him and his plan, I can accept that in my life. I accept his promise. I say yes to that. But there's some things in our life that God's word lets us know, as I talked about last week, that are God's will. The, the Bible tells us that fear isn't the will of God. God has not given me a spirit of fear. If God hasn't given it, why would I spend one second of my life living under its influence? Worry isn't from God. Shame isn't from God. Like There's a lot of things that we're called to resist. God, Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Say yes to Jesus. That's what he can bring into your life. But the opposite is, is the flip side of that. Is he says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I've got to recognize what those are because some people put, put things the enemy's doing under the God category. And I accept what I'm called to fight. Okay. There's a whole lot there, but we need to say no to the enemy. We need to say yes to Jesus. And prayer is more than just asking for our needs to be met. I've only got two points for you today, so nice and simple. But number one is this. Prayer is the greatest weapon at your disposal. I think the, the reason for the, I'll say, lack of prayer. Uh, so when I was in college, one of the jobs I had for a short time was I worked at a uh, little Christian bookstore in Phoenix. And um, I, well, I had, had a job previous to that. They put me on call, but they never called me. Anybody ever experienced that? So I found this job. I, I worked at this little bookstore, and, and while I'm there, it was a great, great experience, but while I'm there, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm realizing something. I'm new in my walk with Jesus, and I'm seeing all these books, and, and I found that, you know, books about a lot of things that people are curious about sold great, but books on things like prayer and sharing your faith just kind of sat. Okay, I won't. Because there's something about prayer that sometimes we don't realize how effective and how powerful it can be. And so prayer is actually the greatest weapon at your disposal. Ephesians chapter 6 says it this way. Paul is describing to the Christians who are, some of them going through difficult seasons. Some of them going through persecution. Paul himself would experience that. He wrote most of the New Testament while arrested. Sometimes even chained directly to a Roman soldier. And so as he's looking at these Roman soldiers, he's probably thinking, man, they've got armor. They've got different aspects, different equipment for different purposes, different weaponry for different applications. And he writes to these Christians who are going through some battles and some warfare. And I'm not talking like, you know, we had a coffee malfunction today and we had no coffee for second service. Spiritual warfare is real. <laughs> But, but, but let me tell you, Paul's talking to people who are under the threat of their very lives standing for Jesus. 
And he's writing to them to encourage them, to remind them to listen. Verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Well, pastor, what are we going to do if this happens? What are we going to do if that happens? We're going to do this. Well, I'm going through this in my family. This is what you do. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Because when I depend on his strength, his strength doesn't run out. Mine does. My ability runs out, but his doesn't. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or schemes of the enemy, the devil. For we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Now, I I know you think that person in your life, maybe you had Thanksgiving dinner with them a couple days ago. You think that person's the problem. Oh, am I getting too personal? Okay, let me, let me back up. I, I know you turn on the news and you think this person's a problem or that person's a problem, but we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. You're not born again and put on a cruise ship. I like to eat. I love cruise ships. But you're put on a Holy Ghost battleship meant to invade darkness, meant to take territory, meant to, meant to see the, the, the world turned upside down for God, meant to see her family set free, meant to see North Iowa have revival, that you're placed on a battleship. And sometimes we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, describing spiritual forces, against powers, rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done everything you tried, having done everything else, you stand firm, stand. He goes on, I'm not going to take time to read through the armor, but he's describing different aspects of an armor of a soldier. And he gets to verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation, which protects your mind, guards your mind, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which he defines for us, is the Word of God. So God's Word is like a sword. Now, a Roman soldier had two weapons at their disposal. They had a great sword, double-bladed sword, but they also had a spear. And as a believer, you don't just have the weapon of the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit he describes here, but in the very next verse is something most people don't recognize as a part of the equipment and the armory of a believer. Because a Roman soldier would also have a spear, and that spear served two purposes. When the enemy was charging, you'd stand your ground. And you could use that spear like a pike to stand in position and block any attack and be able to stop the advance of the enemy. And a spear can reach what your arm can't reach. It can impact what you can't on your own impact. And that's what prayer does. They could take those same spears, which were designed to also be thrown like a javelin and could be tossed at great distances and could hit targets that they could never reach on their own. And that's what he says in the next verse, verse 18, praying always with all prayer. You've got lots of kinds of prayer that the Bible describes that help equip you. And when you use it defensively, it guards you. When you use it offensively, it takes ground. You know, in any sport, you have to be good at defense. In your faith, you have to be good at defense. You need to know how to be rooted and grounded. You need to know how to stand firm. But you also need to take ground. You need to have to go sometimes on the offense. The church was not meant to be on defense. We're not meant to just hang on until Jesus comes back and hopefully we don't backslide. There is ground right now that the enemy is going unchallenged in our lives, our families, our communities. And you and I are called to impact it. 
not just churches generally, and not just pastors and missionaries and evangelists and all of that. That's all fine. But the church, the body is to be equipped because you have a God-given purpose. You have unique God-given gifts that there's a place and a purpose and a people that you're called to impact. We're we're called to be light in the midst of darkness. We're called to be the salt of the earth. That's what Jesus himself said. And that's going to take going on the offense And I tell you what, the greatest weapon at your disposal is not an argument. It's not nagging your family. It's not trying just to convince somebody. It's not even pointing fingers. It's not assigning blame. It's bending the knee. Because when you pray, heaven hears. You can complain, Facebook hears. But when you pray, heaven hears. Heaven steps in. God does what only he can do. I, I want to look briefly at Peter. Peter has this moment in Matthew 16 where he's, he's about to have two interactions with Jesus that are completely opposite. And not because Jesus is different, but because he approaches Jesus in two different ways. But let's look at the first. In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, who do men say that I am? What's the opinion? What's polling? What's everybody talking about? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. They're going through the list. But then Jesus makes it personal because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what people think about Jesus or your family or the culture. It matters what you say because faith has to be personal for it to be real. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, blessed are you, Simon, he's not been up to this point known as Peter, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because this didn't come from flesh and blood. In other words, a person didn't teach you this. You didn't read it in a book. This came from my Father who's in heaven. Revelation doesn't come. See, what changes your life, what inspires faith is not just information. Revelation doesn't come from a classroom. I believe in education and training, and we want to start Bible schools. I'm all for all of that, but you have to get in the throne room. You have to encounter God for yourself. And he says, hey, uh, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven, and uh, here's what he tells him. I say you're Peter. Peter's name in Greek means a piece of the rock. And he says, and I tell you, upon this rock, he uses a different Greek word, Petra, if we can put that on the screen. He says, upon this rock, Petra, this great rock. What rock is he talking about? Not, Peter's a rock, but it's, it's, it's something greater than Peter. It's what Peter just said on this revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, I'm going to build my church. And here's what I want you to catch. The gates of hell can't prevail against it. See, hell's on defense. You didn't know that, but hell was on defense. Hell's been afraid of you since the moment you were born. Afraid you would say yes to Jesus. Afraid you would receive what heaven has for you. Afraid you would do what you're called to do. He says, and I tell you, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Verse 19. When I was 16, my dad gave me some keys. Man, I was excited. He wasn't. Some, some, of you, some of you remember when your parents were terrified. Some of you got teenagers right now, and you're terrified. I, I, I learned to drive in Vegas. <laughs> Vegas is fun to drive in because, like, you don't know what side of the road people are going to drive on. 
People leave a casino all kinds of directions. <laughs> and I remember, I remember feeling a sense of, of responsibility. That I, I, I've, I've gone from adolescence to now I get to drive. And I don't care where I was driving. I just drive anywhere just, just for the sake of driving. Now it's like, I don't want to drive anywhere. <laughs> but but I, 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 he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. You've got keys, church. And they give you access to something even greater. They give you access to heaven's purpose, heaven's promise, heaven's power. He says, I give you the kingdoms of whatever, the, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth is will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The Amplified Bible brings out the tense of this. And here's what it says. Whatever you bind, that's a rabbinical phrase that means to forbid. Whatever you forbid, declare to be improper or unlawful on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose or permit, declare lawful on earth will have been already, what's already been loosed in heaven. So, so what's he saying? He's saying heaven says yes to some things and no to some things. And when you say what heaven's saying, heaven's purpose is accomplished. Uh, come on, church. When you've got fear and heaven says, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. And you're saying yes to heaven. You're saying yes to Jesus. You're resisting the, the lie, resisting the fear, resisting that. And you're taking hold of the promise of God. You know what's happening? You're doing what this verse is talking about. You're opening the door to God's grace, God's help, God's strength to overcome the very thing that you're facing. Peter one day is on the way to pray in Acts chapter 3. We won't read it for time, but we can put it up on the, on the slides. Uh, in Acts 3, John and Peter are on their way to pray. And uh, as they're going, they're going up to the temple, and, and they see a man who's laid every day of his life at a gate. And he's laid at this gate, broken, and, and, and he's unable to walk. And he has to depend upon people to carry him there. And then he tries to eke out an existence begging for money as, as people are going to the temple and leaving. And, and he's hoping to just make, get enough to survive another day. And Peter and John are on their way to pray. And they walk past this man. And something different happens that day. Peter sees him, looks at him. And the man, seeing that he's got their attention, looks up at them expecting to receive something. And, and Peter reaches for some keys. <laughs> Not really, but he, he remembers, I got some keys. And he says to the man, he says, silver and gold I don't have. I didn't bring my wallet to church today. Here's what I've got for you. Can, can we put that verse on the screen? Here's what he says. What I have, I give to you. Can I tell you, this isn't just what Peter has. This isn't just what the apostles have. This is what you have. This isn't what pastors have. This is what everybody has. He says, what I have, I give to you in the name. <laughs> see, see, we like to pray before we have Thanksgiving dinner. And we pray with gratitude for all that God's provided us. I got some family members who pray, and they give a soliloquy. I don't know what that is either. Um, they, they, they give a, they give a, a speech, and, and after the turkey's gotten cold, and the mashed potatoes are cold, and then we know the prayer's done because they say, in Jesus' name, amen. Can I tell you, the name of Jesus was not just so we know the prayer's done, and it's time to eat. 
No, no, the, the name of Jesus is so much. It's name above every other name. At his name, mountains move. At his name, the broken are made whole. At his name, people are healed and transformed and the lost become found. At his name, he says, what I have, what do I have? I've got a key. It's called the name of Jesus. You've got that key too, church. And when you go on offense, what are you doing? You're praying in his name. You're praying in his authority, not mine. Not See, see watch what happens. He, he prays for the man. He takes him by the hand, and he rises up. And this man who's been broken his whole life is now healed, and he begins to walk and leap and praise God. He runs, and he's celebrating. And all the people that have gone to church, but there was never power before. Oh. Because dead religion hasn't, okay. Um, they, they see something they didn't see before. We can manage, uh, and we should. I got to not get in trouble like I did last week. Okay. See, we like things we can do on our own. But there has to be a place where we do what we can't do because we have a name. The world's waiting because the world's sitting by a gate broken, and you and I carry a name, a name that sets free, a name that heals, a name that restores. And, uh, and, and he's walking and leaping and praising God, and the crowd gathers, and they go, who did this? How did this happen? And they look at Peter and John, and Peter says, hey, guys, can we put it up that verse? They say, it wasn't our power or godliness. Like, it wasn't us that did it. It was his name. Through faith in his name. So the key was there. We just used the key. That's what faith does. And I think the reason why sometimes the church prays but there's no power is our faith isn't in the name to change things. It's in our own inability. Now, what does that mean? Faith is what you believe. It's what you really deep down believe. And if I really believe that my inability is greater than God's ability, then I'm putting my faith in the wrong place. (laughs) Okay. He said it was his name through faith in his name that made this man whole and gave him perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Our problem is we have more faith in our inability than God's ability. Our failure instead of his faithfulness. Our inadequacy instead of his sufficiency. It's his name. Philippians 4, Paul wrote this. Actually, while he happened to be jailed and arrested and and tied to a, a Roman soldier, which I think is relevant for the next thing he's gonna say. He says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. See, prayer is the weapon to fight fear. Prayer is the weapon to fight anxiety. But it is, a weapon not used doesn't win battles. He says, be anxious for nothing. Say no to that. But it's not enough to say no to the wrong thing. You've got to take hold of what you really need. He says, but pray about everything. See, when I start to worry or I start to be up at night and I'm thinking about this or that, I found the key is very simple. It's not enough to stop worrying, because anybody ever tried not worrying, and you worry more? He says, be anxious for nothing, but pray about everything. Big stuff, small stuff, doesn't matter. Pray about everything. 
with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the result of that prayer, the result of giving to God. See, it's not enough to let it go. You've got to give it to God. There's a difference. When I just let something go or I pretend like it's not a problem, I'm bearing it. But when I bring it to God, I'm free of it. He says, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind. How does something pass understanding? Well, it means you can't figure out why you have peace. You can't figure out why you got joy. You just know you got it. <laughs> Second point. The key to effective prayer is a yielded heart. The key to effective prayer is a yielded heart. In the world, surrender leads to defeat. But in God's economy, in the kingdom, surrender to God is the only way to victory. That's why James, when he said, he didn't just say resist the devil. It's not enough to fight the darkness. You've got to say yes to the light. You've got to say yes to God. You've got to say yes to Jesus. In fact, the devil is the one who, from the beginning, fell because of, I think it's Isaiah, maybe 14. He said five times, I will. I will be like the Most High. I will exalt my throne above heaven. He says, I will, I will, I will. Jesus comes to a garden right before the cross, and he prays, and he says, God, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's, that's a yes. Jesus modeled a yes. Do you know what Jesus' yes to the Father meant? It meant our salvation. It meant our redemption. It meant our forgiveness. It meant a home in heaven. It meant everything changing. That's what a yes did in a garden. A no in a garden, Adam, led to, well, just look out in the world. Look at our own brokenness. Look at the consequences of sin. But a yes to the Father from Jesus changed everything. Jason, the team, if you want to get ready. Let's go back to Matthew 16 quickly. Verse 21. Peter, right after he has this exchange with Jesus where he said, I give you the keys, bind, loose, goes through that whole thing. And then a little bit, he's walking with his disciples, same, same trip. A couple verses later, he has a different interaction with Jesus because Jesus starts describing something that doesn't fit in Peter's plan. And, and, and submission is easy when we agree with God. But it doesn't start until we don't agree. And then we say yes, even when we don't understand. Even when it doesn't make sense. Peter, (laughs) let's look at it, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, they liked the miracles, they liked the raising the dead, they liked the feeding the 5,000 with the loaves and the fish. Here's what he does. He says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Like he's going through the whole plan. He says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be put to death. He's describing the cross. And I don't even know if they even heard the next thing. I'm coming back. It's not the end. I'm going to be raised on the third day. Like, he just lost them all. Like his audience just checked out. Because watch what happens next. Peter comes to him. 
puts his arm around Jesus. Hey, Jesus, it's me. It's, it's, it's Peter, rock. <laughs> I, I, he, you've been talking to the guys about this whole, like, arrested thing, death thing, and that doesn't quite work with our plan. You're the king. We've already updated our bios. Like, <laughs> you're the king. We're your inner circle. Like, that doesn't look good. Jesus, you got to stop this cross business. If you don't believe me, read the next verse. Peter took Jesus aside, began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this won't happen to you. It can't happen. You're not going to be killed. You won't be put to death. You won't be betrayed. And Jesus turns to him and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's a strong reaction. (laughs) Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. Now, when he calls Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. You know, Peter didn't go worship the devil in that moment. He, he didn't, you know, go join a cult. He didn't do any of the things we would ascribe to somebody that's in line with the devil. But he was. And here's why. Look at the rest of this verse. He says, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. He says, you're evaluating my plan based on how it looks or how it feels instead of something that's much better. Well, God has planned. Now, I, I don't understand everything God has planned, but I trust him. I'm thankful for the cross. How about you? I, I'm thankful for redemption. Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to pay the price for my sin and yours. He had to make a way for us to be saved. And he says, get behind me, because at that moment, Peter is being a voice for the enemy. Jesus wasn't wrestling with flesh and blood, though. He recognized the problem, and he resisted it. But he also revealed something that I think is an example for all of us, because in one moment, we can be like Peter. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the next moment, God, let me help you with your plan a little bit. Let me take the wheel back. None of you. Okay, just me sometimes. But I, I, you know what? I've never regretted in November of this year. It's 18 years since I rededicated my life to Jesus. Most of that time been serving in ministry in some capacity. I've never once regretted a yes to Jesus. Not once. Let me pray for you. If you would stand to your feet. We believe this message will be encouraging and timely. To connect with us, find us on social or at rivercitychurch.co.